Hello, you're not welcome here, friends. Welcome to season two. I'm Jacqueline Yost. And I'm Kelly Cirello. Jacqueline and I are super excited to share our concept for season two with you. Wheels off unsustainable travel tales. Since we spent the first season exploring different definitions and iterations of sustainable travel, such as regenerative, conscious, transformational, and so on, this season we wanted it to be lighthearted and fun while sharing what unsustainable travel looks like. But we will also provide solutions so that you can learn from our mistakes. We will feature a series of stories from practitioners in the field of tourism, as well as academics, to highlight what research is showing about unsustainable tourism patterns and what can be done to mitigate the negative impacts. So for this episode, Jacqueline and I will be sharing some personal unsustainable travel stories from over the years, going by the sustainable tourism industry pillars, environmental, economic, and sociocultural. So to kick us off, let's start with the environmental. Um, I would say the example that sticks out most in my mind was one of my earliest memories of family vacations. My family had gone to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and this was back, geez, I think probably in the early 90s. And at the time, and I think still at the time there, there are all-inclusive resorts that had giant, giant buffets. And as a kid, of course, that was very exciting, and we ate everything that we possibly could. But naturally... Um, you didn't eat a lot. So I just remember vividly from those massive all-inclusive buffets, the amount of food that was being kind of schlopped out on plates. I know that's an odd word, but that's really what it was. It was like literally scooped out on plates and then the amount of waste that came from it. So I remember I was doing it myself. I would take huge, gigantic plates of fruit and you name it, you know, chocolate and cookies and whatever else was there probably eat two bites and then leave it. And then I'd be like, mom, do I have to finish the rest of it? And at the time, because we were on vacation, my parents were like, it's okay, but just make sure you finish the next plate. And so, you know, three plates in that half of which was waste. I was, I, I vividly remember that at the time I didn't know it was bad, but I look back at that and I'm cringe just thinking about how much food waste there was. And because at the time we were a family of four, you know, myself, my brother, and then my two parents, you know, the amount of food waste from our table alone was considerable. And thinking about that multiplied times the number of guests in the resort that we were staying at was substantial. I would imagine there were, gosh, I'm thinking back to the resort, there's probably 100, 150 rooms possibly at the resort. So, you know, a solution to that as an adult looking back would be a way to food compost and to put signage out there to, you know, inform people about the amount of food waste that's out there and to be considerate of how much you're consuming. I think that the good thing is right now that there's more of a tension of how much waste we we have, especially in kind of the all-inclusive, all-you-can-eat settings. Um, But I think when you're on vacation, the the tendency is to be wheels off and be like, screw it, I'm on vacation, I'm going to eat whatever, I'm going to take whatever on my plate. So... Um, yeah, I think a lesson that can be learned is to be more mindful in terms of your consumption and the, especially food waste um, when you're not only in all in, you know, all-inclusive kind of buffet-style situations, but in general about being mindful of that. So how about yeah. you, Jacqueline? <laughs> um, also, just to your point on that, like I try to avoid like buffets usually at all costs because I can't <laughs> unsee the amount of food waste that's there anymore. But I have actually spoken to someone um, like a hotel. Actually, it was like one of our Dubai based businesses um, where they had to do um, a buffet in the beginning. But instead of just producing like a bunch of food um, for like at like free will um pretty much they look at the amount of guests that they have um mm. staying at the hotel and they'll make 
certain amounts so that there is no waste if it's easier for them to just kind of like accommodate the guests with a buffet style um, breakfast. But yeah, I've I've never been to an all-inclusive, but I have been on a cruise, which was a very similar experience. Um, that's also un <laughs> more unsustainable in its own, own regards. Um, but yeah, composting, I think, would also be a really great solution or even handing out the leftovers um, to the staff to allow them to kind of take home um, so that more food doesn't go to waste. Um, for environmental, for for me, um, I think most of my stories are coming from Southeast Asia because that's where I did um, spend a lot of my years and that's like really how I did or as an adult like traveling, but it also was where I started to break into the sustainable travel industry. Um, so something that really sticks out to me is more of like the animal related um, experiences, specifically for me when I was in Philippines, uh, which is one of my favorite countries in the entire world. Um, off the coast of Cebu is a really popular experience with whale sharks, um, where they're whale sharks, they have like, it's actually very unknown what their migration patterns are in the world. Um, but in, because there's this one concentration, this one season where whale sharks will pass through Cebu and like the off the coast of the Philippines, um, locals started to kind of feed um, the whale sharks over there because it was bringing in tourism money because people would want to go and hop in the water and like swim with the whale sharks and see them naturally. Um, so now these whale sharks stick around in this one area um, for the entire year. So it's disrupted their feeding patterns. Um, the whale sharks are now starting to get used to humans, um, so they're not scared of them. I've seen like videos of whale sharks coming at tourists with like a huge open mouth and while they don't have um, teeth, it, it still would be terrifying, I think, to see this like massive creature coming towards you. Um, but because they're also not afraid of humans anymore, they're starting to bump into boats um, and associate people with, with food. Um, so that was an unsustainable travel story that really stuck out to me. I didn't even go um, into that experience when I was there because I was just so sad for the whale sharks. Um, I have had an experience in Australia where I was able to swim with them naturally, where the company that I went with, they educated on different sustainable practices of swimming with a wild animal. Um, they didn't chase. Um, they only had a certain season. They didn't bait um, the whale sharks so that it was like a much more organic and natural experience to kind of jump in the water and swim with them. Um, with the Philippines, though, it's kind of hard to kind of like take away that experience um, and that source of income for the locals. So there has actually been a lot of organizations that I've heard of recently that are stepping in to kind of like time the amount of experiences, um, limit the amount of people that are in the water, um, really just to try to kind of keep that revenue source and that revenue stream for the locals that have built up um, capitalizing on that like whale shark experience, but also protect the whale sharks in such a way. So th that's my standout story. Um. <laughs> well, I had a, I think I, we had chatted about this offline a while ago. I had a very similar experience in two locations, actually, um, with whales and, and similar to what you had said. So the first one was in Tadoussac, uh, Quebec. I have a really hard time saying that, uh, Canada. And so similarly, it was interesting. So we went, it was during a season there were, you know, in terms of their rest periods and feeding, um, it was really critical to monitor the number of boats, but it was interesting as they're telling us, we went out and there was probably, I counted 30, I think it was 37 boats at the time. And so I can imagine in terms of the engine noise, the amount of people that were talking, you know, a lot of that, the sound is disruptive and also the, the engines from the boats are extremely disruptive. So 
you know, I left there just thinking about, you know, this is even though they the guides were the ones telling us that, you know, it can be disruptive. And as a company, we're very mindful of that. I think the other companies that were out there were not mindful in the fact that they were joining them out there was equally as kind of hypocritical. The second mm -hmm. location that happened in, um, I was in Hermanus in South Africa. So that area, because it's warm waters, that's where they go to mate. So it, it changes their mating patterns. It wasn't the volume of boats that was out there, but it was just the fact that they were, you know, in an area that it, they were actively trying to mate. You could see there was tons of whales and it, it was an incredible experience. But you know, thinking they, they had said that it became such an issue with the volume of the amount of boats that were going out there that they had to regulate it. So at the time that we were out there, there was only one other boat, which was nice. But at the same time, it's it was telling me that before that there was too way too many boats. And so um, it, it was good that they changed, you know, and, and restricted the number of people that can access it. Another thing I want to share also from South Africa. So in terms of the and this goes just kind of safaris in general. So in terms of kind of wildlife and human interaction and the environmental unsustainability of that in South Africa. So they have like the, you know, Kruger is the big national park that everyone goes to for safari. And this, you know, again, you can go to Tanzania, Zambia, you know, through uh, Kenya, there's amazing safaris, but it's similar to what you had said in terms of the whale experience. Sometimes um, if you go to a private game reserve, sometimes they feed the animals. So they'll bait the animals to go to certain areas so the, the tourists can go see it. So for instance, there's a game reserve that's not far outside of Cape Town, which traditionally doesn't have a ton of the same wildlife where Kruger does on the East Coast. And they're known to bait animals to be in certain areas to go closer to the hotels. And the problem with that is, as you know, it changes their feeding patterns. It changes their you know, susceptibility and kind of danger to they're comfortable around humans. Um, and in terms of migration patterns in general, they tend to stick around because they know they're going to get fed. And so they reduce kind of their ability to fight off predators and so many other things. So it's it's pretty you know sad to think about, but just be aware that if you're looking for a safari or you know to have some sort of wildlife viewing experience, to research, you know, and to look, I, the way I found out about those safaris um, was I was looking in the comments, you know, in like the TripAdvisor and all the Google reviews. And it says like the, the people will say, the locals will say, don't go here. They feed the animals or, mm. you know, whether it's a whales or, you know, it could be lions in the case of the safari. So something to be aware of. So, yeah. Yeah. It's sad. I actually also like looked into feed and baiting and a lot of the times the food that people um, will feed the animals is likely a lot less nutritious as well so it can't, it doesn't have the right nutrient sources that most of these animals would hunt themselves in the wild um, but I do see like the side of the operator where they're wanting to provide a really great experience and almost like guarantee that a tourist if they're paying this money will see they see the animal it's so true. <laughs> on the flip side on the game you're exactly right because on the flip side in the game reserves you'll have negative reviews about i we went on like a three-hour game drive and we only saw like two elephants or like we didn't even yeah. see a lion and so like on the flip side you're right the provider is kind of <laughs> between a rock and a hard place they have to show something because as guests we expect we want to see something we want to see the big five if we're going to safari and if you don't, there go the negative reviews. And that's often out of the person's control, meaning the provider's control. So it's, there are two sides of the coin. So it's, you know, economically, they want to, you know, perform and not get negative reviews. But for the animals, you know, there's detrimental impacts when they're being baited and fed. So super interesting and, and not easy to solve. <laughs> it really isn't. I go back to my story with the whale sharks. And I really just do think that like the 
that ethical experience that I did have where they kind of educated us on why they don't bait or why they don't chase the whale sharks in their natural habitats. Um, luckily, we did see a whale shark, but that day we only saw two when usually they can see like multiple or a lot more. Um, but I think that that's just like nature. And it is hard, though, because a lot of people will take these experiences while they're traveling. So they'll have like a limited amount of days. Um, I know at least like for some of the ethical experiences that I've come across, they'll promise you to be able to go on another experience um, if you don't witness wildlife um, in the wild. Um, so that you can at least have another chance of seeing it. But um, I guess just like what's made me comfortable over time with these experiences is like, that's just nature. So try to enjoy it for what it is and you're supposed to see what you're going to see. Um, so, I mean, those are some really great examples. I think that kind of spotlight wildlife um, as well as food waste, but some other things that come to mind throughout the years have just been like environmental um, degradation um, such as like dead coral reefs like while I've been diving that can come from pollution and sunscreen and just overcrowding on like a, a coral reef in general um, and then I've also I, I know we were laughing about this earlier but I went on a hike <laughs> a morning sunrise hike in Indonesia um, to see sunrise over a volcano which I was like super excited about but um, when we got to the top of the volcano, and I'll try to find these pictures um, so that I can share them while we share this podcast, but it was so crowded on the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. um, and then also everyone was just leaving behind their uh, water bottles and their waste. And there were mountains and mountains of water bottles. And so when you actually come down the mountain, what I started to recognize is there's all these structures built around like gates made out of plastic water bottles. There had to be hundreds of them. Um, so it's not only food waste, but it can also be just waste of what you're bringing with you or trash. And yeah, there's just so many environmental sustainable story, unsustainable stories that I can like point towards, but those definitely were some that stuck out in my mind. Yeah. In terms of hiking, the things that, so I, you know, was living as you know, Jacqueline in the Adirondacks. And so the Adirondacks is a very popular place for outdoor recreation and hiking. And it has one of the most fragile kind of mountain ecosystems and really biodiverse landscape in the high mountains, the high peaks where most of the people flock to hike. And similarly, you know, there was an enormous issue there with microplastics and this mm. is kind of gross, but also human waste. So like there, there's like kind of leave no trace uh, trail ethics that educate people, you know, kind of take, don't leave, you know, things behind and think ethically about, you know, your impact on the environment and others that are also going to be hiking on this trail. But you would hike, you know, in some of the areas in the really popular hard peaks like Mount Marcy or Algonquin, um, you would see human waste on the trail. And so even though that's just gross, that's also, you know, <laughs> negative for the ecosystem because when it rains, you know, that, you know, trickles down into waterways and then animals drink that, you know, so it has kind of cascading impacts that you don't think about. The other thing that I noticed in the Adirondacks too, and that something that, it's funny because on the flip side, I also can't blame people that don't know. So one of the things that before, again, I've admitted, you know, I also you know, didn't know this before I started hiking there. But when you're hiking off the trail, you'll see people off the trail. That is also damaging ecosystems. So for instance, like if you're going off trail to take a beautiful picture of a sunset or something like that, you're, you're stepping on really fragile ecosystems right below you. And so 
Um, there's a reason there's trails there and it's there's a reason they're asking you to stay on them. So it's something, again, I think most people don't know and they don't kind of think about, oh, you know, it's nature, it's resilient, it'll grow back. And yes, that's true in a lot of ways, but some of those systems don't grow back after you're standing on them. So just something to be aware about and know how and what to do with your poop in the wilderness and where to go and, and take care of that, you know, in terms of like we would say the you know, toilet flowers would be right in the middle of trails. So that's not how to handle it. So it's a whole nother episode about like outdoor etiquette and like the leave no trace principles, which I think we'll get to in, in future seasons. But, um, I, you know, they, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think I've definitely heard people who are like specialized in how to dispose of organic waste mm -hmm. um, <laughs> in oh, a yeah. proper way. And I think it's mainly digging a hole, but I'm sure there's a lot more science in there. But my question for that is like, how do you dig a hole without going off trail? Are you supposed to just like pop, pop a squat right in the middle of the trail? Like what if someone comes? Uh, well, there so are areas questions. that don't have, yeah, there are areas that don't have like the, you know, the, the fragile ecosystems next to it. So just looking for areas that naturally like allow for that. Well, I know that environmental is like mainly what people kind of think about when they do start thinking about sustainability, which I think is breaking. I think more and more people are starting to recognize that sustainability doesn't just impact the environment but it also has to go hand in hand with social sustainability as well as like the local um, economy so when we're moving on from environmental unsustainability let's shift gears now to economic unsustainability um, I specifically have a story that sticks out in my mind from my master's research like my general rule of thumb as a sustainable traveler is just to always pick local as much as possible um, and this really came into like the spotlight for me when I was doing my master's research on different like sustainable tourism properties. Um, I was in Borneo and I went to a multinational corporation hotel that um, was a chain and they did claim that they were sustainability. So it was like, or sustainable so that they were listed as like one of the top sustainable places to stay in Borneo. And um, you go there and it's, you walk in and you, it looks the same, like no matter where in the world you are, which I have learned over time that that's supposed to generate like a sense of familiarity for travelers so that they know what they're getting no matter where they're traveling in the world. But I went to the restaurant and um, they're on their menu. It's like sustainable meat. And it's flown all the way from Australia and it was like <laughs> beef. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. First off from like, just probably like meat consumption. That's not good from an environmental standpoint, um, if it's not local, in my opinion. But also like there is such a source of like local farms around um, where you can source your local ingredients, you can source local meats, which would be a lot more environmentally friendly, but it would also put money back into the local economy um, and support your local farmers um, or producers. So that's always something that sticks out to me is like, even if someone will say that they're sustainable and they're, they're in a certain location, always look to kind of like see where their supply chain is going um, to ensure that they're kind of generating or stimulating the local economy by sourcing from there as well. Yeah, I completely echo that. And especially, you know, like you had said on, on menus, you know, it's really easy to see, like you said, if they're flying it in from a, a far source instead of sourcing from local farms or something, it's a, it's a key factor. Also in terms of merchandise too, I think that goes to stores and like you said, to hotels too, you know, trying to find a locally owned you know, smaller property potentially, or it could be a larger property, but locally owned property that can support, you know, local, um, locals. 
the, it's interesting because the, my example that I was going to share was related to merchandise and stores. So, you know, I've been to Venice so many times. It's funny because I think like everyone else in the world right now, Venice is such a beautiful city. You can't take a bad picture there, but the problem is over tourism, right? So there's so many people, the, the quantity of people at times is, is overwhelming. And what's interesting there over time, because of the, the cost of living, because of the cost of, you know, kind of importing things has increased. Um, a lot of the products that are that are sold there and say made in Italy, particularly the leather products, um, are not actually manufactured and made in Italy. Um, you know, a lot of them are you know outsourced to other locations. It could be manufactured anywhere in, in Pakistan and China, but um, particularly the leather. And it's funny because that's what people think of and go to Italy for. Oh, they have great leather and they expect to get you know high quality. But the truth is, it's not, and it's not locally sourced and made. So. Um, when you see that kind of made in Italy label, certainly question where that comes from and, and see the validity in it. And that can be hard to do. Um, oftentimes there's an inner tag <laughs> you'll see, especially in clothing. So on the tag itself, like up, you know, behind your, like in the back of your neck, it'll say made in Italy. But if you look inside, that's actually where it's produced. And so the inside tag will say manufactured in China or manufactured in Pakistan. So the leather bags don't always say that, but like I know the leather coats, um, I've gone on, I've taken students on study abroad trips and they've bought leather coats and I've said, oh, cool. But did you look at the inside label? And it's like back, it says Italy. And then on the inside label, it's like manufactured in Pakistan or China. So um, just be aware of that. Because again, that's tourism leakage. That's the ultimate like example of tourism leakage. And that means like when revenue is generated by tourism. So if somebody's spending money buying merchandise, but it's not going, you know, it's not supporting the local economy. It's not a local manufacturer that's making that. That's being, you know, made outside, brought in, and then, you know, the the money could be going outside as well. So, um, yeah, go for it. That's so interesting. And it was something new that I learned. Well, I guess I it wasn't so new. I told you the story about how I went on a date with um, someone one time that like literally owned a yoga shorts company and was like, yeah, they're they're eco friendly. And I was like, oh, like what? Where do you source these materials? And he was like, oh, you can just get anything printed on on there if you want to. I work with like this like one warehouse in China. And I was like, do you know what I care about? Like what I do, this is straight yeah. greenwashing. Um, but sometimes it's not as easy to identify. Um, and I didn't know that about the tags. I'll definitely look at that for that in the future. But for for me, just like one of the tips that I've learned over the years is like when you go to like night markets or um, local markets, if they are very generic, um, like trinkets or like yeah. souvenirs and that are being sold in multiple places, even if they're being claimed that they're local. Um, it's it's highly unlikely if it's so standardized and being sold everywhere that it was actually made locally. So I've always tried to go to more local artisans, um, ask the local community, are there any local makers that I should like go visit? Or like, who do you get your like souvenir not souvenirs from but like even just like house decorations um and try to meet the local artisan yourself um so you can know like where the money is going and the art that you are supporting another that it's interesting what you said about the market so it's one of my favorite things to do i always every destination i go to i try to find a local market because to me the local market is where you're going to find authentic and to be able to support the local community one of the most like surprising instances of a local market for me was in France. So the, I, I think the markets in France are some of the best. 
What was interesting, though, in the South, um, uh, one of the local producers there told me, I was like, oh, it's amazing that you have such, you know, f- amazing food sources. The, the, the vegetables all looked perfect. The, the fruit looked beautiful. Everything was shiny and perfect. And I was like, where are most of these from? Are these kind of like from central France or these from south of France? And he was like, well, we get it from a market just outside of Paris and it's from all over Europe. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I didn't know that not all markets are local markets. So that it's in some there are, meaning it's sourced from local farmers. And you'll see, it's funny because like you had said, it's kind of the standardization when they're really pretty looking and everything kind of looks the same. And that's not always the case, but um, when their local farmers tend to have imperfect things, right? You have like kind of bashed up, you know, some of the oranges don't look great. The carrots kind of look, you know, all over the place and, um, yeah, so I, I quickly realized, and then as I continued to go to markets, you know, whether it was in Italy or, you know, other areas throughout Europe, I noticed the same thing in Portugal. It was interesting. So I was like, are these really local? And some are, you, you do have to question and some aren't. So, um, just be aware. And again, not just in terms of products, but also food and, you know, where they're sourcing it. So, um, yeah. Totally. So, yeah. Transparency is always key. Like even like shopping at local markets in New York like if I'm ever stopping by like an outdoor market I always try to see what farm it's coming from or even try to speak to the farmer itself and I think that that's present no matter where you're at but it is interesting to learn that like not all these markets even if they are claiming it to be local or nearby that sometimes you would just never think um because it's just like a stand right there it's like where could you get it's a stand yeah like I'm like why would you drive a truck from and it's like five hours from Paris full of fruit to go down there but the truth is like they make a lot of money by making it look like it's straight from the farm but it's from a farm but other in other areas in Europe so super interesting so um in terms of I I wanted to share one more story around economics and sustainability and we'll go on to the social cultural side so one of my like most ridiculous stories about unsustainability economic unsustainability so I had gone to Costa Rica for a, kind of an ecotourism getaway. We were staying at kind of a, a locally owned resort. Um, it was, you know, it had yoga, meditation, all locally sourced food. Um, but when we flew into the airport before going to that resort, uh, we landed and the driver immediately, without even asking, was like, I'm going to stop by Walmart in case you need any supplies. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Like the driver that this resort had recommended to us, the immediate thing they did. And he thought it was helpful. He was like, okay, let's go right to Walmart, which as you know, that's, you know, not in terms of locally sourced. And that was like the first, you know, stop. And I was like, no, no, it's cool. Like we'd rather and like insisted. And so we walked around Walmart, didn't buy anything and then left. And we were like, okay, that, but that says a lot. You know, I think that that his tendency to do that, that driver, and he said, you know, most people want to stop here because they need to get suntan lotion and bug spray and all these things. And that's what happens. And so, you know, thinking about your choices and the fact that there might be a local store that might also have sunscreen and bug spray that you could, you know, potentially shop at instead of a Walmart that certainly is not from Costa Rica. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so while convenient, never be afraid to ask the questions as well. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Now that we've covered the economic unsustainability, lastly, we're going to talk about sociocultural unsustainability. So Jacqueline, you want to get us kicked off with that one? Yeah, this was one of my um, standout stories from my time abroad as well. I had just really started to get into the ecotourism world and was really excited about it all and still didn't really know like what to look out for um 
when even if it's just like claiming to be eco to ensure that they're actually staying true to their practices but sometimes you just really never know until you get there um so we booked it was the holidays and we booked this dive um dive vacation in flores in indonesia so it's like komodo area and it's beautiful like stunning national parks it's like the most pristine coral i've ever seen um and when we got there, the resort, it was on its own private island. Um, they had a lot of environmental practices in place that were very apparent and very obvious. So I thought everything was great. Um, I was having a really nice time on this island, um, seeing fish and just like doing yoga and eating nice meals. Um, but I started to actually get to know the dive master pretty well. He had just gotten there. It was right in 2018 after the Lombok earthquake um, in Indonesia. So he actually had just lost his whole family home and had traveled to Flores to um, provide for his family while they were kind of in the rebuilding mode to send back more money. Um, what I noticed from him straight off the bat is that he mimicked an Australian accent um, because Westerners could understand him better. I don't know. I just I thought that at first it was smart, but then I started thinking about it and I was like, why is he trying to like he's in Indonesia? This is like his home country. Why is he trying to like dilute his accent just to connect mm-hmm. with like Westerners better? Um, so then as more and more we went diving because we were actually getting certified. So we had to hit like a certain amount of dives. Um, he would always come up like shaking so cold in the water. And I noticed that there was like a bunch of holes in his wetsuit. Mm. Um, and so I started talking to him, asking him about like the practices at the hotel. And I found out that all the staff, especially the local staff, were being put into these like back dormitories. It was all bunk beds. They weren't receiving proper like nutritious food. They literally had like uh, the what is the coffee uh that you can kind of like pour and it's not it's uh instant coffee instant coffee yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) blanking on that um instant coffee like ramen noodle packs um while the like management that was mainly from europe um would stay in like the luxury suites they would eat in the restaurant while we were um and it was just like a completely different scenario for like the local staff versus like the management um and so we just thought i just i i walked away from that whole experience with a really bad taste in my mouth um and we ended up and it was the holiday time so it's the season of giving um we ended up buying the dive instructor a thank you just like wetsuit just because that was like what i felt like i could do at the time to kind of like provide some sort of solution but i'm pretty sure he left not too long after that um so i think that it's it's really important to kind of not just be so blinded by sustainability on like the environmental front but to also really be sure to look at like the practices that they are treating their local staff um, or how that might be affecting like the locals and the local community well I just I admire you so much for even noticing that Jacqueline because I think so often you know people are on vacation for two weeks and they're just like I want to spend all the money and enjoy things and not think about hardships or what other people are going through and the fact that you took the time to recognize and connect you know, and to see what people are going through, you know, the workers are going through, I think that that it's, again, in terms of your sustainability and thinking about your impacts on the local community. But I think 
what you highlighted there is unfortunately a pattern, I think, throughout so many tourism destinations. And I think it, it highlights the social and economic divides between visitors with money and local communities that don't have money. And oftentimes in developing countries, that's usually a really steep divide. You know, the, when you were talking, it was reminding me, and I, I think I shared this story with you before, you know, in the Cape Winelands region in South Africa and Stellenbosch and Franschuk, it's a really similar situation. The way that the locals have, and they will never say it, they will 100% never say it, but visually you can see it. Um, the way the farm workers, you know, in, traditionally had been treated you know, or it's very different, you know, the, then how the, the traditionally white European owners, you know, operate in, in terms of what they have access to. So for example, um, in the past, the farm workers used to be able to live on the farm. And so they could live and work and they used to have these little cabins that were on the farm. But as the wine tourism industry developed in South Africa, they realized that they could be renting that out for Airbnb purposes, or as part of the hotel, you know, kind of a hotel stay, on the vineyard. And slowly what happened was that they moved, physically moved um, the workers off the property with very little notice in some cases. And the trouble is there's not uh, reliable public transportation in all of those areas. Over time, they've kind of compensated. I do have to say there are smaller locally owned um, vineyards and wine producers that are 100% supportive of the farm workers that, that that totally support them that have kept them on the property to reduce the amount of transportation that they have to and that's an additional cost on the farm worker obviously um, but there are smaller local producers that are really mindful of that and do you know give back but the bigger corporations that have bought some of these smaller local um, producers mainly because of covid and other reasons when they've bought them out um, you know, their attention to help and support the local farm workers and local community is gone. And so they don't really care. You know, it's all about turning out money. So I think that, you know, just for me, hearing those stories when and physically seeing, you know, they're, they're, they're now luxury properties. So you can't even tell, you know, that they were, you know, housing for employees in the past, but they've been turned over. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very mindful when I do visit those areas, you know, to think about, you know, is it, you know, how are they... And it's often hard to tell, right? So the way that mm -hmm. I look now, you know, it's I, I look on the website, are they local owners? Meaning are they, you know, if I'm going, for instance, back to South Africa, are they locally based South African owners? Um, if they are, you know, if they have sustainable practices kind of written on their website. But as you and I both know, that could also be kind of woke washing or greenwashing and saying what they're mm -hmm. giving back to the local community. So unfortunately, oftentimes you don't know until you're on the ground. And so mm -hmm. um, in the past, I've actually changed... <laughs> lodging accommodations because of that because I felt kind of gross about that you know I I spent two nights in a, a beautiful place but I found you know after you know hearing from the staff you know how and I'm certainly not going to name the name of the location there but um, it was in the Cape Winelands I decided to find a local place that I had heard about that supported their farm workers in a in a more sustainable way so and again it's it's something like I think particularly as Americans we're on vacation you know often two weeks you know, we don't want to be bothered with that. But I just want to emphasize that our collective decision over time and our collective decision in terms of where we're spending our money and how does matter. And so your inconvenience about maybe in my case, having to move to a hotel or choose a different restaurant, you know, or choose a different store um, does matter, you know, kind of collectively. So it might not feel like it individually, but collectively, if we all start to think, you know, more consciously about where we're going and how we're, you know, supporting the local community and spending our money, I think it does matter.
Totally. And it's always so unfortunate when it takes you by surprise. Um, like when you were speaking, it wasn't a completely the same experience, but I had something similar happen to when I was traveling in Myanmar. Um, we did like a three day trek to Inlay Lake. And when I got to Inlay Lake, um, for, for people who don't know where this is if you look at like the lonely planet guidebooks like the cover is locals <laughs> like fishing and throwing out these like wide cast nets um on during like sunrise or sunset on the lake I was so excited to go and like get that picture and kind of see um these like fishing practices in person only to find out that instead of actually staying true to these like traditional farming practices now there's just groups of locals that will sit out on the lakes um and pose for tourists they don't actually fish there anymore (laughs) they're not actually fishing and they're just like they're posing with these giant nets they're casting them out it's like very beautiful and then at the end they're like give me the money and they like come up and they're like, that's not enough. Like, give me more. And it's like, well, I don't, I actually should probably look into like more of like the history of fishing and like those practices, but it's definitely has turned into more of an unsustainable revenue stream because at the end, I didn't want to give money or even take pictures because it wasn't real. And I think that that's just like a case where that completely took me by surprise when I was there. But not only is that um, an unsustainable revenue source, but it's also now just like kind of cultural dilution because they're taking like aspects of their culture um, and utilizing it and not actually staying true to those practices that could potentially make more money and generate more of a sustainable income if they were to actually be fishing um, out on the lake. But I should probably look into like more of the history of the fishing practices. But that's just something that like always sticks out in my mind that took me by complete surprise. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like it was just because like there's so many tourists coming to the area and wanting to get like that one Instagram worthy shot. Yeah. And it's, but I think that you're pointing out too, like in terms of the influence of social media and how that's changed our tourism patterns and what in turn the um, operators do to fulfill what we're looking for to be able to get that good picture. It's something, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a detrimental cycle and it keeps going, you know, we're, we're, you know, keep re-supporting, you know, what they're doing. So, and the question is, you know, how do you break that cycle? And I think that you pointed out, and I think it's really well, you know, looking for other things, you know, one of the, one of the safaris that I had gone on in South Africa, one of the guides said something beautiful to me. And it just reminded me of the importance of like the mindfulness around what you're doing. So instead of rushing to those areas to get that picture of like that image that you saw on the cover of that, you know, lonely planet, I'm not saying you in particular, but me, for mm-hmm. instance, I've gone to so many locations and like, oh, that, that's such a, you know, beautiful shot of who knows Eiffel Tower and God knows what else. But instead, the smaller things that you don't look at or think about. So when we were on safari, the guide had said to us, you might not see a lion today and you might not see as many giraffes as you want, but look around. There's so many beautiful birds. And like you would never think there's more species of birds here than anywhere else and you'll probably ever be. And no one looks for these birds because they're always looking for the big five. And so I started looking for birds and I was totally cool. And that safari, I didn't see a lion. I was totally fine with it because I saw so many beautiful birds and that was okay. And I think. The trouble is, is that we go to try to take the picture of the lion, to try to take the picture of everything else. And the operators in turn support that. But I I did like what he said. He changed our perspective. We stopped looking and he didn't apologize for not being able to deliver the big five and seeing, you know, the, the white rhino or whatever we were trying to see. 
he said realistically, like you had said earlier, this is what nature is and this is what we have and you appreciate it for what it is and we're not going to try to pretend. That was actually in Polanisburg. And I think that I really valued that type of tour and I, I've learned to travel and kind of to try to seek out those types of experiences and, and internally be okay with the fact that I'm just going to see some birds and, and love that I'm seeing the birds that I am and not maybe seeing the line that I'd hoped to see. So. Yeah, no, exactly. Your experience is what it's supposed to be. And I think that like the perfectionist um, or just like wanting to please that is like present in a lot of people, especially within like the hospitality and tourism in 